Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 21, The Great Orc. Last time, we learned everything there is to know about penguins. Well, I mean, not everything there is, but a good deal. Maybe a comprehensive introduction. Well, not comprehensive, but a brief introduction, at at least. Um, uh, Yeah, that's... uh, Let's do that again. Last week, we had a brief introduction into the world of penguins. And as we learned, penguins are confined to the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, well, with a minor technicality. But we won't get into that. Which means that no matter how excellent the odd couple pairing would be, there is no penguin that has ever run afoul of a polar bear. Maybe this comes as a surprise. I mean, penguins are supremely adapted for cold climate conditions. They flourish in Antarctica, so there shouldn't be any reason why they wouldn't do just as well in the Arctic, right? Well, in theory, yes, but there are two reasons why penguins have never managed to make the migration from south to north. As we saw last time, penguins doubled down on swimming. They ditched the sky for the surf and turned their wings into flippers, but in the process became clumsy and stumbly on land. Now, penguins could make this choice, because in the southern hemisphere where they evolved, there are no major land predators that would prey on them when they came ashore to lay their eggs and rear their young. It was far more important that they be fast and agile while in the water, because that's where they find their food and that's where their true predators hang out. This isn't the case in the northern hemisphere. If a penguin wanted to live in the Arctic Circle, they would have to contend with foxes and wolves and bears. Oh my! Being a flightless ball of blubber, isn't going to cut it. So, that's the first reason. But as we shall see, this on its own isn't a deal breaker. The second reason we don't get penguins in the Northern Hemisphere is because there is something in the way. The tropics. Penguins evolved in the far south. And as I mentioned, they evolved to be supremely adapted to a cold climate. As annoying and harsh as the winter is for us, penguins love it. They are especially adapted to thrive in cold water. They are built to retain heat. Although a penguin might do very well in the high latitudes of the north, they wouldn't be able to get there. For example, to get to the north, they would first have to evolve to survive in the tropics. Now, one penguin has already pulled that trick off. The Galapagos penguin. You may recall from last episode that penguins have fancy feet that have evolved to minimise the heat that is lost while standing around on ice all day. Counter current heat exchange if you want the uh, technical definition. Warm blood from the body is pre-cooled by cold blood coming back from the feet, which in turn is preheated before it goes back into the body. Uh, you know, listen to last episode for more details. This is a highly effective way to retain body heat, basically by stopping it from ever leaving the body. Well, the Galapagos penguin has ditched this adaptation. In fact, their feet are especially designed to do the opposite. Lose heat and lose it fast. These guys live in the tropics after all, it'd be hotter than hell out there. 
they had to come up with ways to cool down, so it makes sense that they would jettison one of their best adaptations for staying warm and turn it into something for cooling down. They have high blood flow in their feet, and it rapidly expels their body heat. These little guys also pant like a dog, and spend a lot of their time in the cold water that surrounds their islands to stay cool. Now this is great for making the move from the polar region to the tropics, but it also means that if the penguins wanted to keep moving north, they have now lost the very adaptation that made them suited to polar regions, and they'd have to go through the whole rigmarole of evolving them back. Evolution is always a trade-off. To gain one thing, you've got to lose something else. You want to live in the tropics? You've got to lose your polar advantage. Ah, you want to go to the pole again? you're gonna have a bad time. Now I'm not saying a penguin couldn't slowly, over millions of years, get those polar-friendly adaptations back, but it ain't happening anytime soon. All of this is to say there are good reasons why there aren't penguins at the North Pole. Predators and a physical barrier of unfavourable environmental conditions. But once upon a time there was a large penguin-like bird that did live in the Arctic Sea. It was black and white, had flippers instead of wings, stood up to 80 centimetres tall, had a large bill, webbed feet, and spent most of its time in the sea. I mean, heck, it even looked just like a penguin. It was called the Great Orc. And funnily enough, the penguins that we know and love today were even named for this very bird. The Great Orc's scientific binomial name is Penguinus impenis, which is just the most delightful thing to say. Penguinus impenis. I encourage you to give it a try. It'll be sure to bring a smile to your face. It rhymes, it sounds vaguely vulgar, whilst also being utterly nonsensical. What's not to love? Penguinus impenis. You see, for the European sailors who first struck out into the southern oceans, penguins were an unusual sight. They didn't have anything like that in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, with the exception of the Great Orc. At first glance, these southern birds looked almost identical to the bird they knew from the North Atlantic, and so they called them penguins, after its genus name. The word penguinus comes from Latin and translates vaguely to mean something that is plump or fat. And yeah, penguins do kind of look like doe birds when they're chilling out on land, so yeah, it kind of fits. As for impenis, well, it has nothing to do with how well endowed the bird is. Quite the opposite, actually. This word also derives from the Latin penna, relating to wings or feathers, and so impenis means to be without wings or flight feathers, and is a reference to the great orc's flightless nature. So it turns out that our southern dwelling penguins were named quite literally after a northern dwelling penguin. A bird which, just like them, had taken a similar evolutionary road to become an expert swimmer at the expense of losing flight. Like I said, every adaptation comes with a trade-off. Of course, while our northern penguin may look just like the penguins we're more familiar with today, this similarity only runs feather deep. The great orc and penguins are no more related to each other than any two random birds. This is an example of what in the biology biz we call convergent evolution, where similar environmental conditions and lifestyle choices push unrelated animals to develop similar traits. 
That's right, Evolution crafted the penguin form independently, not once, but twice, on opposite sides of the world. Clearly, there's something to be said for the penguin physique. It must be a winner. It's just a really efficient design for swimming, diving, and hunting fish. So if our great orc isn't a true penguin, who are they related to? Well, now we come to the very curious family of Alicidae, more commonly known as orcs. This is a little family of 25 birds, largely restricted to the cold waters of the North Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Their closest relatives are seagulls and terns. The most famous member of the family is the puffin, those stocky black and white birds with the colourful bills and stubby wings. We did meet these birds briefly in our last episode on the penguins, and you will remember that unlike most diving birds, the orcs have evolved to use their wings to propel themselves underwater. But this came at a trade-off. Wings that are good for swimming aren't particularly good for flying. Most birds make a choice. Ducks, loons, and grebes that swim underwater opted to keep their flying wings and instead rely primarily on their feet to scoot about. Penguins decided to double down on swimming, and so they gave up a life in the sky for wings that could help them zip about faster under the waves. But orcs, yeah, orcs wanted to have their cake and eat it too, so they compromised and developed wings that were pretty good for pushing through the water while maintaining the minimum requirements to get up and into the sky. The result is that puffins, guillemots, and auklets, and the likes, all have to flap their wings on overdrive to keep airborne. But when there are predators about that could nab an unwary bird wandering about on a beach, the ability to get into the air can't be tossed aside too lightly. And as we saw in the northern hemisphere where these birds live, there are predators aplenty, and so they kept the ability to fly. And yet, we have the great orc, the only flightless member of the family. They're also the only extinct member of the family, so maybe there's a clue in there. But we will come to that. Clearly, land predators weren't a total deal-breaker, because somehow these lumbering birds managed to figure out a way to survive without flight. So what's their story? Well, as we have seen before, if you're a bird that is going to be flightless, you need to go where predators aren't. Now, the great orc had an extensive range, all the way from Cape Cod in America, up to Greenland, across to Norway, and then down to Portugal. For the most part, they avoided land predators by living their lives at sea, roosting on the surface of the ocean to sleep, and spending their days diving under the waves. Not unlike some penguins do during their feeding season, where they will stay away from land for weeks on end. But like all birds, they were always compelled to return to land to nest. So they needed somewhere to go where they wouldn't become an easy snack. And that bastion of safety for them, just like countless of other flightless birds, were islands. Across the North Atlantic, there were 20 or so remote rocky islands where they would come ashore to make a nest and raise their young. Bjork laid large, teardrop-shaped eggs, white in colour, with a black, almost paint-drizzle-like pattern splattered on it. All members of the orc family 
lay similar shaped and patterned eggs, quite different to how we imagine a classic chicken egg. They're far more elongated with a distinct narrow end and a distinct rounded end that give them their teardrop shape. There are many competing theories as to why they lay eggs shaped this way, but we can save all that for another episode. The point is that while the great orc population at its height was estimated to be well into the millions, every individual at one point or another got funneled into one of just a handful of protected places that were predator-free when it became time to nest. As such, the great orc was never able to dominate its habitat in the same way penguins did in the south. While they filled the same niche, niche as the penguins, at least insofar as lifestyle and environment was concerned, in the north it was a far narrower slice just by virtue of the fact that they had such little real estate available to them to raise a family. So, okay, if you want to run the penguin playbook in the northern hemisphere, you're gonna have a hard time. Sure, you can do it, but you've got to be more strategic about where you come to land and where you make your nest. But for millions of years, the great orc made it work, even if it might have kept their numbers in check. At any rate, they made the most of the little real estate they had open to them, with some testimonials from the time saying you couldn't go to shore and find a place to put your feet between the birds so thick on the ground were they. So what happened? What went wrong? Well, I'll give you three guesses, and it wasn't supervolcano, asteroid, or a tech bubble bust. No, as always, it was we people who ruined things for the great orc. Well, okay, during the little ice age in the middle of the last millennium, the growing sea ice did allow some polar bears to find their way onto an island or two. But, but, but no, for the most part, it was us. As the 16th century rolled around and sailors performing the transatlantic crossings became increasingly common, the orc was seen as a great food source. Being flightless and clumsy on land, it also made them dead easy to catch. As we have said all through this episode, if you're going to be flightless, you have to live where the predators aren't. Well, a predator finally found their islands. Sailors would corral hundreds of the birds onto their ships, either to be eaten fresh or salted and preserved for later. In 1622, one Captain Richard Whitburn said sailors harvested the orcs by hundreds at a time, as if God had made the innocency of so poor a creature to become such an admirable instrument for the sustenation of man. I mean, look, he certainly had a way with words. And it wasn't just their meat that made the orc such a valuable commodity. Their feathers, fat, and eggs were also keenly sought. The down industry in particular played a large role in the hunting of the orcs, so good were their feathers as a form of insulation. One of the finest and most coveted objects from the time was a pillow made from orc down. Well, actually, the real prize was eider duck down, but we'd already nearly driven that bird to extinction, so we had to move on to the next one, because those pillows aren't going to stop themselves, and you know if a bird's going to go extinct, at least we got some good Manchester into the bargain. Like, pretty sure that makes it worthwhile, right? You know, soft pillows, fluffy pillows? Yeah? Kill a bird? Pillow? Yeah. As the years rolled on, their numbers began to dwindle as they were progressively wiped out of their few known nesting grounds. 
Although their population was high, they were all kind of standing in the one spot, so depleting their numbers quickly was sadly all too easy. As they became rare, collectors and museums became increasingly interested in securing some specimens, particularly their eggs. That's right, the meat and pillows weren't enough, we also wanted their pretty eggs for... display purposes? I don't know, I'm not sure about that one. So ironically, their growing scarcity only hastened their ultimate demise. Eggers would journey out to the islands and sometimes climb dangerous cliffs to snatch the eggs for rich collectors back in Europe. One by one, the birds disappeared. Some legislation was passed at the end of the 18th century to protect the birds and ban their hunting. And can you guess the punishment for being caught hunting an orc? That's right. A public flogging! You would literally be whipped through the streets. Finally, a punishment that matches the crime. But the laws were never really enforced. After all, who was going to police that? What happens on the high seas stays on the high seas. And so it was all too little too late. Their last known nesting ground was a tiny island called Eldi, just off the coast of Iceland. This island was little more than a stone spire jutting out of the sea. When this last colony was discovered in 1835, only 50 birds were present. Museums, desirous of the skins for display, quickly began collecting the birds. The last pair found incubating a single egg were killed on 3 July 1844 at the request of a merchant who wanted specimens. Two sailors strangled the adults. Wait, what? They, they strangled the bird to death? They, they strangled it? God, you really gotta want to murder a bird to go with strangulation. Anyway, they, they strangled the adults. I mean, it just sounds like a traumatizing way to do it. Or is it just me? Anyway, they strangled the adults and a third sailor smashed the egg they were incubating, and that was the end of the Great Orc. Somewhat ironically, even though there was an intense interest to collect specimens, today we have very few preserved remains. Around the world, there are... 80 or so examples of the great orc preserved in museums, and that's all we have left of the OG penguin from the Northern Hemisphere. And that's also why there are no penguins in the Northern Hemisphere, because there was once, and we done gone and killed them. I mean, yes, technically the Galapagos penguin does live in the Northern Hemisphere, but no one wants to be that guy. And so, that's the story of the great orc. So much more than just an antagonist from Middle-earth, the orc was an incredible bird, supremely adapted to their environment, but unable to endure the greatest predator of all, humanity. Sorry if that's another story that is a bit of a downer, we seem to be getting quite a collection of those. But next time we're going to deal with a lighter subject, the Australian magpie. Some people love them, some people hate them. Are they murderous swoopy boys? Or are they delightful minstrels spreading joy wherever they go? Turns out, it's a little from column A, a little from column B. But you'll have to tune in again next time to find out more. And hey, if you haven't had enough bird action yet, and want to learn a little something more about the whiskered tree swift, then why don't you head over to Patreon? There you'll find our special bonus podcast that I put out for the people kind enough to make a small monthly contribution to support this show. It's called What's Up With That Bird's Name, and this week we're looking at how the Whiskered Tree Swift got its name. 
Are they a fast-flying mustachioed tree? Ha! If only. Well, for just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. $2 a month, I'm giving it away for free. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a larger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Innes of Senny Illustrations, and Richie Clark, the Minty Fresh. So head over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description, and I'll see you there. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list, where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. And I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. So the Little Ice Age was a period of climactic regional cooling, particularly pronounced in the North Atlantic region. The dates of when it occurred are debated, but broadly between the 16th and 17th century. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, give or take 100 years either side. And during this time, temperatures in the region got up to half a degree cooler than what had been the average a century or two before. This had a lot of consequences and may even have helped a revolution or two along. But one upshot was that sea ice grew to a greater extent, allowing polar bears to gain access to some of the great orcs' breeding grounds. And so, despite what I said in the opening, yes, it does mean at one point a penguin-like creature did run afoul of a polar bear. I mean, if you want to get technical. But no one likes that guy. Oh, technically.